As I sit here recording this, we are in the midst of the holiday season, and with the holidays come all of those wonderful holiday traditions. My own holiday traditions pretty much exclusively revolve around what movies I watch every year throughout the month of December. Watching Die Hard near Christmas time has been a tradition of mine since before it became popular to debate whether it's a Christmas movie or not. And it is, and I can explain why, but that's a conversation for another time and place. The Mystery Science Theater 3000 version of Santa Claus vs. the Martians, complete with Joel and the bots singing about a Patrick Swayze Christmas, is another of my long-standing December traditions. A newer tradition for me, starting just a few years ago, has been to watch Black Christmas on or around Christmas Day. Of course I'm referring to Bob Clark's Black Christmas from 1974, but there is a brand new movie entitled Black Christmas that has been released in theaters just in time for the 2019 holiday season. The new Black Christmas is the second remake of Bob Clark's classic, but really, the trailers released prior to its debut gave me the impression that it would be a remake in name only. The story shown in the trailers appeared to be completely different from the original, and the PG-13 rating, though not a movie killer for me, made me think that this new version would be more akin to a teen thriller covered in some sort of horror trope decorations rather than a traditional slasher movie. Well, I've seen this new Black Christmas, and I can say that it is definitely a huge departure from the slasher traditions that the original Black Christmas helped shape. It's a movie that intentionally challenges the perceived traditions of not just the slasher movie subgenre, but also the traditions and institutions that helped shape a male-dominated society. Was director and co-writer Sophia Takal able to create an effective modern tale of socially aware horror in the tradition of countless other genre pictures before her? Or did it all feel a little too shallow in the shadow of the classic holiday horror movie that it was very, very loosely based on? Find out tonight as I share my thoughts on the 2019 version of Black Christmas here in The Last Theater. Thank you for joining me here in The Last Theater, and whether you're listening to this during your holiday festivities, or you've stumbled upon this episode at any other time of the year, you can always find every episode of The Last Theater on cnjradio.com. The Last Theater podcast can also be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and countless other platforms, so search for us wherever you like to listen. And while you're at it, go check out the now classic, if I can call my own work classic, episode of the Last Theater podcast that Joey and I did where we talked about all of our love for the original Black Christmas. Joey will not be joining me here tonight because he seems to have zero interest in watching this new version of one of his favorite movies and I can't really blame him. The trailers did not inspire a lot of hope. Besides, I don't even think Joey's seen the 2006 version. He was certainly eager to have me watch this new one though, mostly because I think he likes it when I talk about having a bad time with a movie. So, like a canary in a cage, I ventured forth to test out the environment, and found that the air in Sophia Takal's Black Christmas was not toxic enough to kill me, though I admit I might have gotten a little lightheaded from the fumes a few times. So no, Black Christmas is not toxic, but it certainly prides itself on being built upon the premise of tearing apart toxic masculinity and the patriarchy that supports. And I think this is a good time to stop down and throw out a few disclaimers before I go any further. First, as usual, when I talk about a newly released movie that people might not have had a chance to see yet, the first part of this episode will be relatively spoiler-free. 
You'll hear no more spoilers than you'd hear in any typical review, though if you've watched the trailer for Black Christmas, then you've pretty much seen the entire movie anyway. But still, I'll keep it light on spoilers, then at some point during the episode, I'll give a spoiler warning, and the remaining minutes will be open to any and all spoilers. In addition to that disclaimer though, I would like to make it abundantly clear that the goal of my review and a little bit of light analysis of the 2019 Black Christmas is in no way meant to be a judgment on the messages the movie tries to convey. I've seen a lot of anger and vitriol online attacking the message that Sophia Tikal tries to convey rather than the way the movie ultimately conveys those messages. A lot of the comments I'm referring to started well before the movie was ever released, and yeah, I clearly had my own opinions going in just based on the trailer, but I always try to go into any movie with as open a mind as possible. Feminism seems to be a trigger for a very vocal set of people online, so when Sophia Tikal described her Black Christmas as fiercely feminist in an interview conducted prior to the film's release, a lot of people pretty much lost their minds. I'll get more into the presentation and pre-release marketing for the movie a bit later on, but for now I just wanted to kind of set a baseline for my personal opinion so I can just move on. Most of the online chatter I've seen gets bogged down with the get woke, go broke crowd, so I wanted to confront that elephant in the room right away. I'm 100% supportive of having as many different voices and points of view not just in horror movies, but in all movies. Genre movies, especially horror and sci-fi, have a very long history of having strong social significance, so To Call's Black Christmas isn't breaking much new ground in that respect. Black Christmas did not do well theatrically in its opening weekend, but I hope to do what I can to explain why I think its underperformance probably had more to do with the questionable quality of the movie rather than the validity of the message. And I'm only pointing this out right now because, if you couldn't already tell, I didn't have a great time with Black Christmas. The reasons why will hopefully become clear as I go along. But before I go any deeper into that, allow me to set up the story. Sophia Tikal's Black Christmas takes place on the grounds of Hawthorne College. Hawthorne is a typical large American university, and most of the story takes place in and between a sorority and a fraternity. Imogen Poots stars as Riley, a senior member of the sorority. Imogen doesn't have an extensive history that I know of in the horror genre, but I remember her best from 28 Weeks Later, which was one of her first movies, and the Fright Night remake. She was in that as well. So her character, Riley, starts Black Christmas as a rather quiet student who cares for her sorority sisters, but who is content with keeping her head down and not drawing any attention to herself. Riley's sorority sister, Chris, is the complete opposite. Chris, played by Elise Shannon in her first feature film role, is a tireless activist. As the movie begins, Chris has successfully petitioned to remove a bust of the college's sexist founder, Calvin Hawthorne, from a public display, and she has an ongoing petition to remove literature professor Gelson for not presenting a more diverse selection of writers in his class. Chris's actions and attitude have made her a target of resentment from Professor Gelson, played by Carrie Elwes, and she is also a target for the guys at what seems to be the main fraternity on campus. Riley and Chris are close, but they butt heads when it comes to how they choose to approach adversity. Riley would rather avoid conflict, but Chris is quick to speak up and fight. On one of the first nights of Christmas break, Riley, Chris, and a few of their sorority sisters head over to the main fraternity for a party. They're not going to actually party though, they're going to perform a song and dance number. It seems like an odd thing to do, especially since we find out very early in the movie that Riley was raped by the former president of the fraternity, a guy named Brian. 
None of the university staff or police officers believed Riley at the time, so Brian went unpunished, and Riley ended up internalizing a lot of her trauma, and she continues to struggle with what happened as we meet her in Black Christmas. This seems to be why Riley is so withdrawn early in the movie. Riley struggles with the idea of going to the party after she finds out that Brian will be there, but she decides to go so she can support her sisters. Riley wants to avoid any attention at the party, but after one of her sisters is nearly raped just like Riley was, Riley is pushed into taking her spot on stage by Chris. It turns out that their performance is all kind of a ruse. In one of the better scenes of the movie, Riley, Chris, and a couple of their sisters sing a song about rape culture set to the tune of Up on the Housetop. They specifically take direct shots at specific members of the fraternity, and Riley gets to confront Brian eye-to-eye through song and with the support of her sisters. It's a liberating moment for Riley, but her happiness is brief. Riley has now joined Chris and has become a target for increasingly sinister harassment in the form of text messages from an account named after the founder of the college, Calvin Hawthorne. On top of that, some of Riley's sisters from the sorority have gone missing. From there, the movie heads off in the direction of a PG-13 slasher movie with all the lack of blood and tension that entails. Campus security doesn't believe Riley about anything, and Riley and her sisters clash about who's to blame for what's happening, and at least one mysterious cloaked figure is skulking through the shadows to take out young women one by one. This middle part of the movie isn't bad, but it isn't great either. You don't necessarily need an R rating to make an effective horror movie, but I do think it's difficult to make an effective PG-13 slasher movie. It's not necessarily about blood, either. The original Halloween isn't particularly bloody or brutal, but it's still an effectively scary movie. The same goes for the original Black Christmas. Minimal blood and violence, but the movie was still effective. Both of those movies have an R rating, and yeah, some of that has to do with the language and alcohol and brief nudity in the case of Halloween, but my point is that if the tension is done well enough to be scary, then it's probably going to end up with an R rating. People will think they saw more blood and violence than they really did, because that's the feeling the movie gave them. In my opinion, a slasher movie can be many things, but there are a few ways to go to really qualify as a slasher. Of course, you need a killer and a body count and a few other staples of the subgenre, but I'm really talking more about tone here. A slasher can be tense and scary like the aforementioned Halloween and Bob Clark's Black Christmas, or it can be gory and violent like many of the later slasher movies from the 80s and beyond. Both of those scenarios tend to garner R ratings from the MPAA. A slasher can be entertaining by being humorous, and it can do that with a PG-13 rating, but Sophia Tikal's Black Christmas isn't meant to be humorous. It's rare for me personally to ever really get behind a PG-13 slasher. It's so rare that, I'm, as I'm saying this right now, I'm trying to think of one that I could name as a, an example of the exception to the rule, but I can't think of any serious slasher movie with a PG-13 rating that I thoroughly enjoyed. I've seen some articles recently defend PG-13 as a viable rating for horror movies, and I completely agree. Some genres of horror can be great and scary without an R rating. I just haven't seen any slasher movies that work well like that. It always feels like something's missing. April Wolf, co-writer of To Call's Black Christmas, took to Twitter to talk about the rating when it became a topic of discussion prior to the movie's release. She talked about how the lower rating makes the movie more accessible to a younger audience, specifically, for her, to younger female viewers. Wolf likes the idea that young women will be able to see the movie since the message is timely. 
She also wants to open up the world of horror to more young women. And I get that. I support the sentiment. But I don't know if the reality matches up necessarily to what she said. Of course, I'm speculating, but I don't think an R rating necessarily stops people from watching what they want to watch. PG-13 movies clearly do better than R movies at the box office on average, but I've never had any difficulty seeing an R-rated movie regardless of my age. The first Scream movie came out when I was underage, but I don't remember having any difficulty finding a way to see it. The same goes for something like Terminator 2, which was released when I was way underage. Media is way easier to get a hold of today than it was back then, so I don't think making Black Christmas PG-13 is opening it up to anyone that wouldn't already be interested in seeing it. That, plus the fact that it barely resembles the original movie in terms of its plot, gives me a cynical view, making me think it's more about cashing in on name recognition with the largest possible audience rather than a purely altruistic effort to reach out to more people. Still, Wolf and Tikal seem genuine with their words, so I can't really fault them for trying. It just feels like there's a disconnect somewhere between their intention and the presentation. So yeah, given its rather light tone, Black Christmas feels more like a teen thriller than a slasher movie. It kind of feels like another Blumhouse movie, Happy Death Day. That movie was also marketed as a slasher, but it ended up being better as a teen comedy than anything else. I enjoyed Happy Death Day alright, but the sequel was way better because it leaned into the ridiculousness and it just went for straight comedy. Black Christmas isn't meant to be funny though, at least not all the time. There are some funny moments, but it's not a comedy, and it's not a very good slasher, so it doesn't have much substance to stand on. I mean, you can make effective teen slashers. Scream is one of the best. And really, most slashers are already marketed to teens. Or at least, teens aren't excluded from the target demographic. Why would so many slashers involve teens as main characters otherwise? And the main characters in Black Christmas are all college students anyway, so following that logic of an older demographic, why wouldn't the movie have a little more edge to it? But okay, I'll get off the rating and move on. But all I'm really trying to say is it's not the rating, it's the content, and the content determines the rating, so that's kind of where I'm coming from with this. The middle part of Black Christmas is mostly centered on Riley in some pretty typical setups. She suspects someone from the fraternity is sending her the threatening messages, and Professor Gelson gets on her radar after a brief encounter outside the fraternity house. At least one more of Riley's sorority sisters goes missing, and is presumably killed in a tame homage to one of the best scares from Exorcist 3 for some reason, and it all comes to a minor climax when Riley, Chris, and two of their sorority sisters are trapped and attacked in their sorority house. I won't go into any more detail about the story until I get to the spoiler section, but up to this point I thought the movie was fine. It was an underwhelming and average teen horror movie with an abundantly clear message, but it was fine. After this scene in the sorority house though, the plot stretches itself to the breaking point and turns into something else entirely. Without giving too much away now, the final act of the movie feels like a below average episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Now, friends of mine will say, but Chris, you love Buffy. And yes, that is true. Buffy is a fantastic character and a fantastic show. In fact, it's my favorite TV show of all time. However, Buffy the Vampire Slayer was never billed as a slasher. Plus, not every episode of Buffy is great. Some aren't very good. One episode that springs to mind when describing the final act of Black Christmas is the second season episode titled Reptile Boy. 
Cross that with any episode from Season 7 with all of the potential Slayers fighting together. Then take out as much of the charm and nuance from the show as you can, and you'll get a pretty good approximation of the finale of Black Christmas. But okay, so for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, I will translate. The final scenes in Black Christmas play out like a supernatural thriller with an emphasis on action. The glue holding the plot together at the end of the movie is sparse at best. The characters take some giant leaps to get from point B to point C, but then it all ends with some strongly emphasized yet muddled messages. I can't really say much more than that without spoiling it for those of you who might still want to watch, so stick around for a few more minutes and I'll spell it all out for you. Before the shift to Spoiler Town though, I do have a few more thoughts. For me, Black Christmas was, as you can probably tell, a disappointment. If it had been titled something else, I still wouldn't have been raving about it, but its association with the original and even the 2006 remake set me up with expectations that were not at all met. And I don't like to compare remakes or reboots or reimaginings to their source material necessarily, but despite myself, I know the association with the original Black Christmas made me enjoy this version less than I would have had it been a completely separate and original movie. I try to keep my expectations low when I see a movie, and that goes double for remakes, but I was still let down. Sophia Takal mentioned in an interview that she was going for a tonal similarity to the original movie, more than a literal reinterpretation of the original's plot. By that, she was referring to the original's progressiveness. And yeah, the original dealt with some socially relevant subjects for the time. Olivia Hussey's character Jess was pregnant, and her decision to have an abortion was one of the main points of inspiration for a lot of the tension and motivations in the movie. The movie was released a little more than a year after the Roe vs. Wade decision, so abortion was still a highly relevant and controversial subject, which I guess hasn't changed that much all these years later. Black Christmas wasn't about judging Jess and her decision, though. It was more about her boyfriend's angry and intimidating reaction. Just like Sophia Tocall's Black Christmas, Bob Clark's Black Christmas was based on a foundation of empathy for its female characters in a society that was often either dismissive or aggressive in its reaction towards them. But while the 1974 version feels real and insidious with the unease and fear it elicits from viewers, the 2019 version often feels heavy-handed. Sophia Tocall did address the heavy-handed nature of her Black Christmas. There's a speech near the end of her movie that she actually considered cutting out because of how obvious it spelled everything out, but she said the speech that U.S. Representative Katie Hill gave during her resignation this past October, where she talked about misogyny and double standards in America, gave her the incentive to leave the scene in the movie untouched. Sophia Tikal said that she realizes that the scene will come across as heavy-handed to people, but she feels it's also real and important. And I don't disagree with her point, but I don't like it when movies hold my hand and explain absolutely everything. It will work for some people, and that's great, but it doesn't work for me personally. I feel like I'm being talked down to when a movie repeatedly and explicitly tells me things I've already gathered from the story up to that point. And there are a lot of things like that in Black Christmas that makes the movie feel kind of clunky to me. Moments that happen are clearly there only to be paid off later, but they don't feel like a natural part of the plot. For example, there's a Christmas decoration that makes some sort of noise in the sorority house. Near the beginning of the movie, one of the sisters mentions that she doesn't like the decoration because it scares her when it makes the noise. 
Then we get a close-up, an insert shot of the thing, and we see it and hear it as it goes off. It's so random and unattached to anything else that it felt completely out of place. Then later in the movie, when the scene where the four sisters are being stalked in the sorority house, the decoration makes a noise, and it distracts the killer for a second to allow one of the sisters to do something. I don't remember exactly how the scene was constructed exactly, but after that happens, the thing is gone forever and is never seen again. I feel like there are a thousand other ways to do the exact same thing, but with something that actually means something to the story and doesn't feel like such a plot crutch that it's so obviously put in there just for one thing. There was also another moment when the sisters are talking and one of them asks one of the other ones about their favorite animals. It's a random question, but with an overly relevant answer that feels completely forced. The reason for the dialogue is super obvious by the end of the movie, but at the time it's just this random bit of dialogue that has no place in the movie, in my opinion. That kind of stuff just kind of makes me groan, because I know that it's there for one thing, and it's, it's, I don't know, it's distracting to me. And overall, at times, it feels like the dialogue has been lifted straight out of a social media debate and placed directly into the characters' mouths. Sides are often taken to extremes in the movie, just like online arguments, and to me, it makes the characters feel less real and more like stereotypes. Riley is the one exception to that rule. Imogen Poots plays the character of Riley very well. She has complicated feelings that come through nicely, and I think she is definitely the strongest part of the movie. Her character arc is satisfying, and I genuinely cared about what was happening to her. I can't say that for anyone else in the movie. So who do I think will enjoy Black Christmas? Well, I don't think fans of slasher movies will particularly like it, and I don't think fans of the original or even the 2006 version will like it either. I think people who enjoyed other movies like Happy Death Day and some other teen-targeted light horror movies might think this one is okay. Younger people who don't really like scary movies might enjoy it as well. I have seen comments of people saying they loved it, and really, I do think that's fantastic. It's not for me, and I don't think it's a particularly inspired piece of filmmaking, but hey, I love plenty of things that are anything but works of art. And if someone watches this version and decides to branch out and maybe check out the original, then I am fully in support of that. I might not like Black Christmas 2019 very much, but there is absolutely room for it in the larger spectrum of genre pictures. That said, I have a few more thoughts to share with you, but you will hear them after the break because it is now time to head into the spoiler zone. Get ready to find out what was really happening over at the fraternity right after this brief intermission. for sticking around, and now let's just jump right into it. This is your spoiler alert. So, all the talk about Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the supernatural thriller ending involve a plotline that I mostly avoided in my earlier descriptions. To start, the matter of Chris petitioning to remove the bust of Calvin Hawthorne, which we learn about early in the movie, turns out to be extremely important later on. During the scene where Riley and her sisters attend the party at the fraternity, Riley stumbled upon some sort of ritual going on in a secluded room away from everyone else. 
The guys from the fraternity were all wearing these black cloaks, and while one of them is talking, he makes a mark on another guy's forehead with some sort of black substance. It seems the pledges for the fraternity have to go through this process that, at the time, seemed like some form of hazing. Riley is not discovered as she watches this happen, and she leaves just thinking it's strange rather than sinister. At this point, we've already seen at least one person in a black cloak murder a young woman. The person in the cloak is wearing a black mask as well, and they appear to be in multiple places at once. It turns out that's because it was actually multiple people. What's going on is that the fraternity pledges are going around in groups, murdering women from various sororities. Why? Because of magic. See, during the scene I mentioned where Riley, Chris, and the two other sisters are trapped and stalked in their own sorority house, they end up killing one of the guys that has been chasing them. Riley recognizes him as the guy that she saw earlier in the ritual, and she recognizes the black mark on his forehead. In the biggest and most ridiculous stretch of plot logic in the entire movie, Riley decides to not go to the police since she reasons that they won't believe her and Chris despite the multiple dead bodies of men and women and the clear evidence of murder and attempted murder. Riley decides to go to the fraternity on her own to go back to that room that she saw earlier in the movie and of course she ends up getting taken by the fraternity and trapped alone in that room where she saw the ritual take place. Riley has pieced together the gist of everything by this point, and so has the audience, but the movie explains it all to us anyway. The bust of the college's founder was relocated from its previous location on campus into the fraternity, so it's now in the room where this ritual takes place. The bust, for some reason, started leaking this black liquid out of its eyes and out of its base after being placed in the fraternity, and the guys at the frat, along with Professor Gelson, figured out that the liquid was part of a spell cast by college founder Calvin Hawthorne. Hawthorne, being a sexist monster of some sort, wanted to keep the women in what he considered to be their place. To maintain the sexist status quo, the goo coming from the statue puts people under this spell, and it causes those people to go out and murder women. This is meant, of course, to be used to keep women under control through death and the fear of death. Any woman who Hawthorne or the frat or maybe Gelson seem to be a threat to their male-dominated way of life is targeted for harassment and possible murder. So it turns out the threatening text messages Riley was getting were actually from Hawthorne, I think. A lot of the details remained unclear as the movie hurtled towards its finish. But on the topic of those texts, that was the homage to the phone calls throughout the original Black Christmas. And not to compare the two, but those things don't compare at all. The phone calls got increasingly sinister, and you were trying to figure out exactly what was going on in Bob Clark's Black Christmas. And there was one direct homage to the calls in this new Black Christmas because one time when Riley, early in the movie, is out, I think they're shopping for a Christmas tree or something, she gets a call on her phone instead of a text. She doesn't recognize the number, but she answers it, and it's this garbled, you can't exactly make out what's being said, but it turns out it's just the telephone, and it was actually the mother of one of the other women who had gone missing, and it was just the interference in the telephone call that was making it all sound weird so it, it was it seemed like it made a joke of the reference to the original but it just made me want to watch the original but I'm getting a little bit sidetracked so talking back about things that remained unclear 
were the text messages actually from Hawthorne? Was he, was his spirit somehow sending those texts? Or was it some of the pledges that had created this account? Or was it Gelson? We don't know. Doesn't matter. Other things that didn't make a whole lot of sense were, in the speech at the end of the movie, one of the things that we were told was that the frat needed personal items from these women in order for them to be targeted for harassment and murder. But why did they need personal items from all of these women? Like, this campus is kind of big, but it's not that big, and there's probably like at least 20 pledges, and everyone's gone for Christmas break anyway, so there's barely anyone left. It seems like it would be easy just to send those 20 guys out there to find anyone that they needed to murder. And I understand the long-term goal of what they were doing, because they told me what it was, was to keep the men in power and sending these frat guys out to dominate politics and business. But what was the short-term goal? They were murdering a ton of women, all within just a few days. How did they hope to maintain that level of murder without people outside the school getting suspicious? I mean, they weren't very careful hiding the bodies. One woman was just left out on a balcony, and another was discovered in the house pretty quickly. Which is another thing that kind of goes away from the original, because in the original, there was the one sorority sister who was suffocated in the first kill of the movie, and she's stuck in the attic, and she's still in the attic as the movie is over. And the in the end credits, you can still see her up in the attic, and no one knows she's there. The only person that found her was killed, which was the house mother. But in this Black Christmas, it felt like they wanted to do that, but they never pulled it off. But anyway, back to the finale of this movie. As Professor Gelson spills all the beans to Riley, Chris gathers up women from other sororities to fight beside her, because apparently this is going on with all women on campus, not just Riley's sorority. So they go in, save Riley, and they fight to take down the patriarchy. Chris turns the frat's weapons of choice around on the frat themselves, and Riley realizes that Chris was right all along. Riley realizes that she should have been actively fighting the patriarchy this whole time. Riley and Chris and their sisters end up killing a few of the frat guys before locking all but one of the rest in the ritual room and burning the entire house down. The movie ends as the women watch the house burn to the ground. So clearly, the deviation from slasher to Buffy episode climax is complete by the end of Black Christmas. Now, since the movie has been so heavy-handed up to this point, it's impossible not to view the finale through a similar heavy-handed lens. I've seen some people say that the finale undermines the main point of fighting against true misogyny and the type of toxic masculinity that leads to social and political dominance that Professor Gelson's speech clearly lays out. I think those arguments focus on the fact that many of the frat guys are under a spell, but I don't necessarily agree with those arguments. I read the whole magic thing a little bit differently than what I've been reading for most people online. I think the spell is meant to be more of a metaphor. The black liquid is a literal representation of the dark nature of toxic masculinity and everything else the women in the movie have had to endure. The liquid is leaking freely in the frat's ritual room, and it eventually gets on nearly everyone there. That not only shows the insidious nature of toxic masculinity and how it affects all people, but it also shows how frat culture can be a breeding ground for stuff like that. When the liquid is placed directly on the forehead of the pledges, it might be controlling their actions in the movie, but metaphorically it represents how this type of behavior is present in all men. 
I read it as saying that it is something that is innate and can be unlocked given certain circumstances. And I think this is the case, whether it was the intention or not, because a character who had been shown to be a genuinely nice guy throughout the entire movie quickly becomes an aggressive douchebag when he is exposed to the liquid. Additionally, another guy who has never even been exposed to this liquid starts getting headaches and acting aggressively just by being in relatively close proximity to the bust of Calvin Hawthorne in the fraternity. To me, I don't see how this can be interpreted as anything other than a metaphor for all men having the potential to be like this. Now, the not all men argument is of course brought up earlier in the movie. Literally, two people get into an argument when one of them says something about not all men being terrible people. And I get that the not all men argument misses the point of pretty much every conversation it pops up in. I'm not debating that. But I think where the message really gets muddled in Black Christmas is when Riley and Chris decide to kill all the frat guys except for the one that Riley likes because he seemed nice and he got dragged into this whole situation anyway. That guy's name is Landon, and if Landon reverted back to being a nice guy after Riley destroyed the bust of Calvin Hawthorne, which he did, and he did, then wouldn't some of the other pledges potentially be nice as well? They are literally condemning all the men in the frat, even though the scope and depth of Hawthorne's influence was never clearly demonstrated. To jump back to an earlier point, I'm not necessarily condemning the message, I'm just pointing out what I see as a huge inconsistency with the message that the movie ultimately leaves us with. Maybe I'm trying too hard to read something into it, maybe all the frat guys were bad before they were mind-controlled, I don't know. Like, I enjoy seeing Riley get revenge on Brian. I also thought that Professor Gelson getting got was alright. I just think the movie tried real hard to paint a black and white picture with an obvious message, but that painting got kind of smudged right at the end. On a less analytical note, I thought the trailer for Black Christmas was kind of terrible. Not necessarily for how it was made, but for what it showed. This movie suffered from the trailer showing us the entire movie. Before I went to see Black Christmas, I saw a few people comment about the twist near the end. After watching the trailer though, I wouldn't consider there to be any twist in the movie. I assumed that they were referring to the magic and whatnot, but that was more of a reveal than a twist. In the trailer, we saw the frat guys killing people, we sort of saw some of the ritual nature of what they were doing, and we saw Chris and her sisters show up and fight and kill everyone. That was all in the trailer. The trailer also showed us the entire opening scene and most of the scares throughout the movie. The one thing the trailer did do well though was to set me up with low expectations. I wanted to like this movie, I really did. Even though it was clear that it was not going to be a faithful remake of the original, I still wanted it to be enjoyable as an independent story. I think a movie like this could be really good. I just think that this one wasn't constructed very well. It felt rushed at times, both in the pacing and in its production. For example, there was a scene that I mentioned earlier that was bizarrely a riff on a scene from The Exorcist 3. It was a wide stationary shot that showed one of the young women looking for her cat. Everything in the shot is very still, and the woman eventually goes off screen left, and then when she comes back into frame and goes to screen right, she is quickly followed by a cloaked figure with his arms outstretched. It was a take, of course, on the scene with the nurse being followed by a cloaked figure with the scissors. Now, the scene in Exorcist 3 is still terrifying. It's terrifying within the movie, it's terrifying on its own, outside with no context. But this similar scene, this homage in Black Christmas, falls completely flat to me. 
It felt awkwardly paced, and it didn't seem like the time or care was taken to pay the scare off properly. So I think that was just one clear example of they had this template for this thing that is amazing, but they didn't take the time to follow it through properly, and it was just kind of put in there just to be like, hey, look at that. And that's kind of what this whole movie felt like. It didn't feel like there was a lot of care taken to make all of this stuff work together as a coherent, good movie. And I think that's pretty much all I have to say about Sophia Tocall's Black Christmas. To me, it's a forgettable movie that certainly won't become a Christmas tradition of mine. It's impossible to talk about the movie without talking about its messages, since the messages are at the forefront of the movie and its marketing. I just wish those messages were supported by a better film. Like I said earlier though, horror movies and horror fiction in general have had strong, relevant messages for as long as the genre has been in existence. Sophia Takal spoke in an interview about taking the slasher away from some of its misogynist tropes, and that was part of her goal with the movie. While there are absolutely slasher movies out there that can be seen as misogynist, I think the simple reading of slashers being all about guys murdering helpless, objectified women with a phallic object isn't necessarily accurate, nor is it very useful. That's a whole other conversation, though, so maybe I'll tackle that in a later episode of The Last Theater. For now, I will take my leave, but not before urging you once more to head over to cnjradio.com for every episode of The Last Theater podcast, along with all of the other CNJ Radio shows. And there are actually quite a few new horror movies coming to theaters in January, so I'll do my best to keep up, and you can hear all about it on cnjradio.com. Until then, bye. Things went down and I'm telling everyone